The Belly of the Beast with Brendan McCauley, a Go Loud original. Ned Broy, having provided Michael Collins with the knowledge of the inner workings of the beast, now sits in Arbor Hill Military Prison alone. Alone with his thoughts, alone with his fears, alone with his consequences. Broy, sitting in a lonely, damp and dank prison cell, in solitary confinement with only the clothes on his back, is left to ponder what he has done and what is to be done with him and to him. A sense of fear, dread and foreboding came over me, which I could not shake off. The likelihood is that he's going to face execution. He addressed me as my poor boy and his hands trembled. I've often wondered what thoughts did Ned Broy entertain as the minutes ticked by into long hours, into long days and nights. There must have been many, many what-ifs. Ned Broy was a committed nationalist who had decided four years earlier to forgo his dreams of becoming an athlete in America, instead to become a spy for the IRA. He had decided to live his life on a dangerous precipice in pursuit of Irish independence. He knew now, having been caught, arrested and incarcerated in his solitary cell, that his days might surely come to an end. Broy was a man of great personal faith, but now that faith must have been tested in the furnace of self-doubt. Did he wonder would it hurt to die? After a couple of days, I was visited by the prison chaplain, Father Turley. He addressed me as my poor boy and his hands trembled. However, when on my daily walk, I noticed his hand trembling, talking to the warders. So obviously the trembling was not caused by the serious circumstances in which I found myself. Father Turley was always kindly towards me. And after about the third visit, he told me quietly that my friends outside sent me greetings and were anxious to know how I was faring. Ned Broy's nerves and anxiousness may have been abated even more when he was visited by a solicitor, Philip O'Reilly. O'Reilly was working for Michael Noyak, who was the preeminent, high-profile lawyer who successfully represented Sinn Féin in many difficult legal battles. Noyak later recalled he received a personal note from Michael Collins saying that Broy was one of his most important men and Noik was to use all means at his disposal to secure Broy's release. O'Reilly informed him of a plan to rescue him from the prison, which was to be led by Michael Collins himself. The plan was that a military lorry would be commandeered and the IRA men, including Collins, disguised as auxiliaries, would drive in and remove Broy. Broy was reluctant to go along with the plan, as it would confirm his guilt, but more importantly in his mind, it would risk the lives of Collins, as well as indispensable volunteers. After I had been in prison about two months, around mid-April, without being charged with any offence, 
Philip O'Reilly and I decided to demand a trial without further delay or my release. They promised an early trial, but nothing happened. I had learned indirectly that they felt that their case was weakened by the fact that I was in charge of the office from which the documents were taken, and consequently was not likely to have given out the documents myself, as I would have been so obviously the first to be blamed. Ned Broy's decision in 1917 to supply the volunteers with vital, sensitive intelligence information in clear sight from his desk in the political office of the G-Division in the belly of the beast may have been vindicated. Walking in the footsteps of his hero, Arsène Lupin, was he about to succeed with his outrageous and bare-faced audacity? Ned Broy continues. There were further facts that strengthened my case. I had been brought before the commissioner and shown the confiscated documents a month before my arrest. And notwithstanding that fact, I had not absconded. They were further puzzled by the spacing of the strange typewriter. Ned Broy also recalls that he had great difficulty knowing what day it was and was unable to note the passage of time. As an athletic and an active man, he must have found solitary confinement and the long wait for trial, or indeed a hearing, unbearable. He was in total isolation and was not allowed to talk with any of the other prisoners and was not allowed to attend mass, which must have been an additional burden. That Broy was not allowed to meet or talk with other prisoners is not entirely true. Two other prisoners who were kept in isolation in Arbor Hill Military Prison were auxiliaries, Captain King, and Cadet Hinchcliffe. Hilariously, the governor of Arbor Hill felt that given that all three men were members of the police force, they would enjoy each other's company. King and Hinchcliffe were charged with the murder of two IRA men, Patrick Kennedy and James Murphy. And one can't help wondering what the conversation between Broy and the two Aussies would have sounded like. The IRA men James Murphy and Patrick Kennedy were arrested by auxiliaries in Dublin and were in the custody of F Company. Two hours following the arrest, constables of the Dublin Metropolitan Police found the two men lying shot with metal buckets on their heads in Drumcondra. Kennedy was dead and Murphy was dying. Murphy died in the Matter Hospital Dublin on the 11th of February. But just before dying, he testified that King had taken them out, saying that they were just going for a drive. Remarkably, two DMP G-men gave evidence that they saw King and Hinchcliffe taking the two prisoners, but saying that they were going for some target practice. Captain W.L. King, commanding officer of F Company of the Auxiliary Division of the Royal Irish Constabulary, was arrested for the killings and King and Hinchcliffe were court-martialed on the 13th and 15th of February but were acquitted after Murphy's dying declaration was ruled inadmissible. Two officers from F Company provided perjured alibis for Captain King at the time of the shootings. King was also implicated and court-martialed for the deaths of Conor Clune, Pather Clancy and Dick McKee who were arrested following the Bloody Sunday assassinations of prominent auxiliary officers. Clune and Clancy were both killed whilst a 
attempting to escape. Ironically, Captain King had been on Michael Collins's list of British intelligence officers for execution on the morning of Bloody Sunday, 20th of November 1920, but was not in his room when the assassins arrived as he was interrogating prisoners in Dublin Castle. Most of the time during his incarceration, Broy remained strong, but on one occasion, he found the pressure unbearable and self-doubt and pessimism began to overwhelm him. I remember most distinctly, the only time that I had a really bad moment in prison was on Palm Sunday. I was confined to the cell all day. I kept telling myself for some strange psychological reason that the British had found some of my handwriting amongst the captured documents. A sense of fear, dread and foreboding came over me, which I could not shake off. It was an impossibility that my handwriting was found because I never used my handwriting on the documents that I passed to the volunteers. As all the papers were typed and there was a very clear understanding that such pages were to be retyped and the original to be destroyed. By sheer force of stern willpower, I was able to convince myself that my handwriting could not have been in the captured documents. In late April 1921, Broy was informed that the summary of evidence proceedings would be taken against him and he would be given a copy of the charges, amounting to 56 charges in total. The 56 related to the emergency legislation named the Restoration of Order in Ireland Regulations, drawn up by the British in August 1920 in response to the increasing public disorder resulting from the IRA guerrilla war against the British. Witnesses who were brought forward at the summary of evidence hearings included Superintendent Purcell and several inspectors, detective sergeants and officers who would all testify that Broy was in sole charge of the political office on many occasions and had typed the documents found at 21 Dawson Street. He was not allowed contact with any of the witnesses, but wanted them to know two important things. Firstly, that he was in fine shape. He was in good form and bearing up in prison. And secondly, he was not in a hopeless position. Broy decided to glare at them intently across the court with a fierce and grim countenance, to impress upon them that his powerful friends on the outside would punish any undue officiousness which might find him guilty of treason. This strategy must have worked because Purcell modified his testimony solely to state his functions as a superintendent in the political office and saying nothing at all to implicate Broy. The prosecution sought to get concrete technical evidence from typewriter mechanics to prove that Broy had typed many of the confiscated documents. They found it impossible to get Dublin-based typewriting experts. All were reluctant to be prosecution witnesses in such a high-profile case, which had clear links to the IRA and the notorious squad. Instead, two DMP inspectors gave typewriter evidence. As Broy recalls, they had no expertise at all and in fact, they missed one vital piece of evidence that would have proven that Broy was in fact the typist of the documents.
The inspectors pointed out that there was a similarity in the confiscated documents and the documents typed in the political office, thus proving that the documents originated there. This similarity was to do with the uppercase capital letters and that the baseline of the capitals was slightly above the rest of the lowercase letters in a line. What the so-called typewriting expert inspectors missed, however, was that this defect was caused by the personal typing style of the typist, who put undue pressure on the shift key that produced the capital letter. This was Broy's peculiar and individual typewriting style and would have been conclusive proof that the letters and documents found in McGrain's flat were typed by him. Broy was indeed a typing expert, and he knew that this defect concerning capital letters, if spotted, would have proved beyond doubt that he was the typist of the confiscated documents. And this would result in him facing the capital sentence of execution. All the documents captured at 21 Dawson Street had been typed in the previous year. A Detective Sergeant McCarthy, who was a nationalist sympathiser, though not a spy, had occasionally worked as a typist in the G Division before resigning from the DMP in 1919. As none of the documents found in Dawson Street had been typed after the date of McCarthy's resignation, Broy's solicitor insisted that McCarthy should be produced in court owing to this coincidence. There was a reasonable doubt that he was the mystery typist and not Broy. Detective Sergeant McCarthy moved to London where he now lived and worked. Philip O'Reilly informed the IRA headquarters he intended calling for an order for the ex-Sergeant McCarthy to appear in court as a witness. And Michael Collins immediately established contact with him in London and ordered him to be prepared to go to America at short notice as soon as secret transport could be arranged. McCarthy agreed and also agreed not to speak with any police authorities in London. Collins in the meantime made sure that a fake note in his own handwriting was found by the auxiliaries during a raid, saying that Broy was very hostile and a very unhelpful person to the volunteer cause, and intimating that McCarthy was the useful source of information. Collins knew that this document would be seen by the authorities in Dublin Castle. After all, he had examined the British intelligence files and knew exactly what documents were kept by the British. As Ned Broy lay waiting for his trial, supporters in the outside world were actively intimidating witnesses and investigators. David Nelligan, in his autobiography, The Spy in the Castle, recounts one such intervention involving the lead investigator in the Ned Broy prosecution, Chief Inspector Joe Supple. Supple lived near Mount Argus Church in Sundrive. According to Nelligan, one Sunday morning, as Supple left Mass accompanied by his family, an IRA intelligence man walked up behind him and whispered, You may as well book a plot in Mount Durow Cemetery up the road for yourself and your family. I have a very grave warning for you, Mr. Supple. It concerns someone called Ned Bry. I am to tell you that if you go on with this case against him, you will be shot. Shocked to the core, Supple was too well aware of what happened to officers who ignored such warnings, remembering back to the Bloody Sunday assassinations. 
Now, Supple's colleague in the investigation was a Detective Inspector McCabe, a member of the Unionist persuasion. Knowing the veracity of the whispered threat, Supple must have frightened the life out of McCabe because both of them vacillated and dallied in their investigation and in fact went on to destroy all the contents of Ned Broy's desk drawers in the G Division offices. With black humour, Ned Broy would later recall that his post office savings book had been in these drawers and that he had a lengthy correspondence with the post office savings bank to get his money back. All this skullduggery was afoot to defend Broy. In the background, back-channel talks to broker a cessation of violence in the form of a truce was taking place. Ultimately, the intention was the negotiation of a peace treaty between the British government and the Irish insurgents. The IRA were now desperately low on arms and men. In the spring of 1921, the IRA possessed only 569 rifles with 20 rounds of ammunition per rifle and only 477 revolvers with limited rounds for these two. The British too were anxious to see an end to hostilities. Even though the head of the British Army, Sir Henry Wilson, was convinced that Ireland could be taken by force, but that this would require a huge army of over 200,000 men. But as he put it, To crush the murder gang by summer, or else we will lose Ireland and the Empire. The British government were not at all keen on such actions, given their experiences after the First World War. They were also very aware that they were on the losing side of the propaganda war and that they were trying to fight a war on the enemy's home ground where the enemy was not easily identifiable. Things get so bad in Ireland in late 1920 that there is a dilemma for both sides, for both the British authorities and the Crown forces and the Irish Republican Army. Is there a way out of this? Can we chart a way out of this? Because it's clear that neither side is going to be able to inflict a decisive military defeat. It was only at a very late stage that the British began thinking of negotiations with Irish nationals, with the Doyle government. The turning point came when Northern Ireland was established, when partition was implemented, when the King, George V, went to Belfast to open the Northern Irish Parliament, and the Ulster Unionists had got everything they wanted. Then, and only then, did the British think seriously about negotiating with, with the Irish, with Irish nationalists. And initially, Sir James Craig had drafted a speech for the King to deliver in Belfast, which was belligerence and uncompromising. The king was dismayed, and Jan Smuts, the South African Prime Minister, had a role in toning it down and making it more an appeal for peace. But until May 1921, there was no question of the British making anything like the sort of compromise that they did. Dominion status was unthinkable. It all happened very suddenly once the Ulster Unionists were out of the question. By then, the British were sick and tired of the Irish question. It was an embarrassment. It was even a disgrace. It was dragging Britain's reputation down the world. Even the king himself was embarrassed at what was being done in Ireland in his name. So all these pressures came to bear on Lloyd George and the government, and they decided on a drastic, radical step 
we will negotiate with these people whom, until just a matter of weeks ago, we denounced as murderers. We will now talk with them. And the result was, very quickly, a truce and the opening negotiations, first of all, at a preliminary stage between Lloyd George and De Valera, and then, much more formally, from October to December. Now, as the negotiations surrounding the impending truce were being trashed out, a stipulation was given that an amnesty was to be granted to all IRA leaders still in jail. Philip O'Reilly, Broy's solicitor, told Broy that Michael Collins had such a list prepared of those prisoners who were to be released. And top of the list was Sean McKeown, the head of the Longford Flying Column, who had been sentenced to death for the murder of several RIC senior officers and auxiliaries. Next on the list was Ned Broy. He could hardly believe it. Having lived with the possibility of the firing squad, it now seemed that he was going to be freed. The call of fear that had covered him and that intensified during the long, lonely hours when he languished in solitary confinement had been lifted. I think the relationship that had built up between Ned Bryan and Michael Collins was a very important one for both of them. Michael Collins may have also felt that he owed Ned Bryan a lot, given the risks that he had taken and the likelihood when he is first incarcerated is that he's going to face execution. He doesn't for a variety of different reasons, but Michael Collins may well have felt that he owed him that. He may also have wanted him because he was aware of the kind of character he was. He had worked with him. Remember, Collins has to be very careful about who he works with, even after the IRA decide that they're going to engage in the search for a solution. He has to be very careful about who he surrounds himself with. If Michael Collins is going to be taking risks, he wants people he can trust. He can trust Ned Broy. And he would have envisaged a role for Ned Broy, I think, in what comes after the ceasefire and the beginnings of, of a new phase. So Collins is conscious of that, but also, I suppose, the qualities and the attributes that Broy had that he would have found useful. As is always the case, when it comes to the end of hostilities, some prisoners are deemed to be much more important than others, either on the basis of what they have done previously or on the basis of what they might do in the future. Ned Broy was one of them. Being a man of great steel and trustworthiness, Collins believes that Ned Broy's story and role in the Irish freedom struggle is not over yet. In our next episode, Broy and Collins head east to meet with the beast. Three or four thugs stepped out unexpectedly before us. One flashed an electric torch in Broy's face. I could see pistols gleaming. The stakes are very high. The possibility of failure is very high. Collins had long ago learned to trust Roy, trust his integrity, trust his judgment. This podcast is researched, written and presented by me, Brendan McCauley. The podcast is produced and edited by Orn O'Halloran, sound design from Lachlan Hart, the podcast is executive produced by Owen Brennan for Go Loud. Darren Cleary is our commissioning editor. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast.